Hope you are all doing well today. Thanks for joining us on a Super Bowl Sunday. It's exciting to be in Kansas City, right? Like we're we're already making plans for the parade. We're already figuring out like, okay, what time are we gonna leave on Wednesday to make sure we get to see Travis Kelsey say something ridiculous? We are pumped to be in Kansas City. Uh, I've heard some predictions this week, and I was sharing with Ryan earlier that I heard someone say, and it was actually my dad was retelling a story. He's like, he's been asking a bunch of people, like, what's your prediction? And someone said, zero to three in overtime. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know that my heart can handle that. About fourth quarter, I may just leave. I just like, I can't, I won't. It's just too much. It's just too much. Uh, but we're excited. If you're planning on joining us here tonight, it's going to be a lot of good food. Uh, Jordan was already bragging to me about his buffalo chicken dip, so I'm excited. <laughs> and it's going to be a good time. If you're celebrating with family or friends, we hope you have a great night. I was sharing with our volunteer team that when Cassie and I were planning out this series, Teach Us to Pray, uh, we were betting on the Chiefs being in the Super Bowl, but we weren't quite thinking through all the implications of what that meant. Uh, because we find ourselves in an interesting point in which we as a city are celebrating and we are talking about temptation and the evil one today. <laughs> so, I won't make any jokes about the Eagles being Satan, uh, but we will be talking about kind of a heavy subject. So if you brought a friend, if you're new here, I know you've heard this before, but I promise we don't talk about Satan every single week. Uh, but here we are today covering the subject uh, because it's one Jesus mentions. We've been in this series called Teach Us to Pray, a line directly from Luke 11. In this section of scripture, the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray. And in response, Jesus gives what will become one of the most famous prayers in all of history. He starts, Father, hallowed be your name. This is an offer to experience communion with our Heavenly Father. To discover the depths of his love and his fondness for each of us. You need to know God loves you, but he also likes you. There's parts of your character, the whole of your being. He is fond of each and every one of us. Jesus goes on to say, pray your kingdom come. A profound invitation to take up our divine identity as God's collaborators. To intercede on behalf of our neighbors and our world to push back the darkness. It's a profound invitation to pray your kingdom come. We pray give us each day our daily bread, an opportunity to share with God the things we need and we want. It's an opportunity to be honest with Him and ourselves about the things we actually need, our daily bread. And then we confess, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. This is not simply a reminder of our fallenness, but it is a reminder of our forgiveness. We confess not because God needs a verbal record of our wrongdoings, but we, because we need to cultivate a brutal honesty 
within ourselves in order to enjoy the forgiveness offered to us by our God. And then there's the last line. The line that gets so little attention. The last line in the Lord's Prayer, to lead us not into temptation with Matthew's little addition and deliver us from the evil one. It is to request that God might rescue us from the darkness within ourselves and outside of ourselves. That we might walk in the path of righteousness and be preserved from the schemes of the evil one. In his paraphrase of this prayer, Eugene Peterson writes this, Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. There's a a shockingly simple observation from this line in the text that we live in a war zone. That the entirety of our lives are lived in a conflict that we fail to acknowledge. But our own souls testify to this reality, don't they? From the outside, most of us have everything we need for a productive and fulfilling life. We live in relative safety and ease. Food is plenty, and most of us never miss a meal. We have clean water and access to modern medicine. We have employment, or at least employment, opportunities. And we have the ability to think and worry about our own preferences and comfort. Like, think about the things that worry you on a day-to-day basis. Oftentimes, it's about our own preferences or about our own comfort. We live a relatively easy life, but that doesn't change the fact that we feel battered. We feel worried. We feel exhausted, stressed out, high-strung, weary. We might even say we feel wounded. Not to offer an overly sensational answer, but maybe the straightforward observation from Jesus' prayer has some truth to it. That we are at war. That we are in the midst of a conflict with one that goes by many names. The serpent, the accuser, the deceiver, the enemy, the hostile one, or as some translations of the Lord's Prayer put it, the evil one. Now listen, guys. I hear it. Like, I hear what I'm saying, and I've grown up in the exact same environments you've grown up in. I sound like I'm about to delve into some dramatic and superstitious rhetoric urging you to yell at the demons disguised as your neighbors. I promise I'm not pulling out a sword at any point in this sermon. This sounds bonkers. This sounds crazy. And listen, I'm a doubter as much as anyone if not more than most of you. I sit with many of you, and I'll talk about, yeah, like, people will talk about demonic encounters, and I'm like, "Uh, it might be like a psychosis. Like, it might be something else. I'm always first to think of a different answer to this. I am a doubter. We are those that have grown up in the materialism of the West. We've inherited a way of looking at the world from Darwin, from Nietzsche, and Freud. We trust things with physical, empirical evidence. Demons, wizards, and dark lords are the stuff of our childhood, right? And we've grown up beyond believing in such things. 
We might revisit the darkness every once in a while at Halloween or as a novelty, but we're reasonable Americans, and that's just for amusement. The darkness is how we entertain ourselves. And thus lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one becomes the throwaway line at the end of the Lord's Prayer. Because we just don't believe in the darkness anymore. We've commercialized it. We've turned it into a genre of movie. We just don't believe in the darkness, or at least we don't think we do. But the majority world, our brothers and sisters across the globe, have no problem believing in an unseen realm. They know and they grapple with the powers of darkness. They've encountered demons, they've felt the touch of evil, and they've looked the devil in his eyes. In 1994, over the course of 100 days, almost 1 million members of the Tutsi community were murdered in the Rwandan genocide. 100 days of neighbors breaking into one another's homes, raping, pillaging, and hacking one another to pieces. It was hell on earth. And in the aftermath, the world reeled from the evil. And Canadian General Romeo Dallaire, who witnessed the 100 days of bloodshed, said this. In Rwanda, I shook hands with the devil. I have seen him. I have smelled him, and I have touched him. Faced with the horror of ethnic genocide, or mass shootings targeting six-year-olds in our own backyard, of earthquakes that kill tens of thousands in a matter of weeks, we can't rely on abstract cliches about sin just being a heart issue. We need to speak of the demonic, about Satan, about a being hell-bent on our suffering and our destruction. You might say we have grown up beyond believing in such things that go bump in the night, and I would agree with you. I'm not saying we blame everything on the devil on our shoulders, and if you take that away from this, you will totally miss the point. The goal of this is not to say every bad circumstance in our life happens because Satan cares about your relationship with your coworker. I don't think that's it. What I'm arguing for is that we take seriously the evil that plays out in our world every single day. In a world full of evil, is it really all that absurd to suggest that there's an intelligence behind it? Take the happenings of Turkey and Syria, an area of the world that was already on the brink of destruction. Economic collapse was right there. And then you throw at this broken community the worst natural disaster in decades. Is it really all that crazy to say that there is an evil intelligence behind so much of what is going on? And so I want to spend the time we have exploring the cosmology of the scriptures to help us better understand the one called evil and his subtle touch. And then we'll spend some time towards the end reflecting on what we do. Guys, I'm going to do my best to keep it light, but <laughs> here we are. The scriptures propose that all the evil we encounter in our world is either a direct initiative 
or a painful ripple of the disorder introduced by the evil one in the garden called Eden. To summarize the scriptures, because let me tell you, we could go from text to text and we could talk about Satan all day and then we would just all leave sad. (laughs) So I'm going to summarize the direction of the text and where it leads us and what it tells us of the one called enemy, and then we're going to reflect on what it means to contend with him. To summarize, the scriptures first and foremost depict heaven and earth as different spheres of reality that are meant to overlap, interact, and affect one another. Heaven and earth are meant to be in union. Heaven and earth in total harmony, but that's not really our experience, is it? In Genesis 3 through 11, we're told a primal story of the evil one's rebellion against God. And then we humans were manipulated into being conspirators in his unholy coup d'etat, transforming what was called good into the tainted space we experience today. And a pretty spot-on metaphor for this is depicted in the Netflix original Stranger Things. Yeah, we're going to go there. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Stranger Things, first of all, how dare you? Second of all, it's about a 1980s small town called Hawkins, Indiana, that begins to experience a whole host of strange things following the disappearance of a young boy. As the story progresses, we quickly discover, and I mean like episode one you discover this, so this is not a spoiler. You quickly discover he is in an interlocking dimension called the Upside Down. The Upside Down is the exact same as Hawkins in Indiana. Same buildings, same roads, same plants. Everything this is the same, but everything is poisoned. The very atmosphere of the upside down slowly kills those who find themselves there, all at the initiative of one evil intelligence. And this is a shockingly similar cosmology to the scripture. This is what the scriptures kind of depict in heaven and earth. But our world is the upside down. Our world has become toxic to us. The ground kills us, the air poisons us, and if nature doesn't kill us, we've done a pretty good job of killing one another. The evil one has terraformed our good world, transforming it into the perfect place for his schemes, for our manipulation, and for our death. And as Jesus observes in John 12, the evil one has positioned himself as the ruler of our earth. Or as Paul puts in 2 Corinthians 4, that he has become the God of this planet, lowercase g. And I don't want to be the pastor that cries Satan. Even last night, Cassie was out, and I was kind of reading over my notes, and I'm like, this is a bummer. (laughs) This is not the one I wanted to preach on Super Bowl Sunday. In fact, I even thought, like, "Can can I figure out a different way to approach this line in the text. But I can't get past the fact that Jesus' final line is a petition for guidance through temptation and against the plots of the evil one. And through Jesus' own ministry, he encounters evil in many shapes, sizes, and forms, in demonic possessions, a disciple's betrayal, a friend's rebuke, 
through the ordinary evils of religious jealousy and through bureaucratic indifference. In individuals and in systems, the evil one lurks. And in one of the most famous encounters, Jesus contends with the evil one in the Judean countryside. In Luke 4, Luke recounts this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. For 40 days being tempted by the devil. Now, the temptation Jesus faces is subtle in nature. He wasn't seduced into sexual immorality. It started with a simple temptation to ease the ache in his belly. Command this stone to become bread, said the evil one. Jesus wasn't cajoled into mass murder. It began as a simple appeal to his ambition and his human greed. It will all be yours, says the evil one. Jesus wasn't convinced to cheat, lie, or manipulate. It began as a suggestion to seize power. Throw yourself down from here and let the angels catch you. The touch of the evil one is subtle, appealing to our disordered desires, precise and camouflaged, enough to deny that he had anything to do with it. The 1995 classic, The Usual Suspects, has a great way of summarizing this. As the villain of the movie narrates his success, nobody believed he was real. That was his power. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. This is the subtle touch of the evil one. For as much as we like to think of ourselves as rational and independent beings, we are all shaped by powers small as microscopic biochemicals and as large as inherited notions of gender roles and stereotypes. I'll give you a brief example. If I ingest too much of a stimulant known as caffeine, my entire day will spiral out of control. I grow more anxious, more restless, and more irritated. Simple ingestion of something as small as caffeine. And although I've denounced this idea from this pulpit many times, if I'm honest, an inherited idea like the American dream still manipulates my heart. Something as microscopic as caffeine or as abstract as an idea can wreak havoc in my life. It has very real consequences on who I am. Think, for instance, of how racism continues to haunt our country. While overtly racist crimes like slavery or Jim Crow laws or outright racial discrimination have been outlawed, the insidiousness of racism is its ability to morph through the times. Today, racism takes on more subtle tones in the form of veiled rhetoric, discriminatory practices, and unconscious bias. It's the release of adrenaline, the slight increase in your heart rate, and the triggering of your fight-or-flight response when you see a black man in the street. For no other reason that we, than we are inheritors of a story that constantly depicts the black man as dangerous. And that moment goes from just an idea to life or death simply 
determined by whether you're armed or not. These ideas seem innocuous, innocent, but they have enormous impacts on our real life. So a long time before we talked about microbiology, social anthropology, or neuroscience, Jesus of Nazareth offered us insight into the dysfunction of the world. So what if it's our modern understandings of life that are catching up with the wisdom of the text and not the other way around? We live in a war zone in our world and in our heart. And this is why we are instructed to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Take a breath. Here comes the turn. Despite the darkness we face around us, we are to not be afraid. The most consistent command throughout the text, do not be afraid, for we are called to contend with the darkness. Now this is a topic typically referred to as spiritual warfare, which is not my favorite terminology, and so I would much rather prefer the term contending, for if you know me, I oftentimes shy away from warfare and violent or battle-laden language to describe our walk with Jesus, primarily because it's been misappropriated by the church for a long time. But despite my discomfort with violent rhetoric, the scriptures regularly describe our faith in the midst of conflict. Let me give you four examples from the New Testament. Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Jude writes this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered for all the saints. 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes, fight the good fight of faith. And then in 1 Peter 5, Peter writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So what do we do in this war zone? What do we do in the midst of this conflict? Simply put, we pray and we act. Let's begin to abandon the false dichotomy between prayer and action. Let's drop that prayer and action are wholly different subjects. Because we believe that we can be a community of prayer, gospel, and justice. Just look at our Jesus who prayed in the wilderness for 40 days. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom and beckoned his hearers to repent and believe. And he challenged the bias, the injustice, and the inequities of first century Israel. He pushed back against the Roman occupation, not with violence, but with subversive love. We can be a community of prayer of gospel and justice, prayer and action held together. Tish Harrison Warren writes 
in her book, Prayer in the Night, great read. She tells this story of Steven Pinker and her husband, Jonathan. Now, Steven Pinker is a Harvard professor who wrote Enlightenment Now, The Case for Science, Humanism, and Progress. And in it, he outlines how our lives have been improved by science and technology, explicitly pitting prayer against the works of progress. Uh, Mr. Pinker would not be very fond of this particular sermon, calling it a hoax. Tish shares this story of coming downstairs one night to her husband in tears reading Mr. Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now. As Jonathan had read about the billions of lives saved by gaining access to clean water and modern medical care, he became overwhelmed by the goodness of God through the work of everyday people. The same data set, the same set of facts, one scoffs and another worships. Tish writes this, the Christian story dares us to believe that the work of prayer is not so far away from the gift of sewers. That hands lifted in prayer and the scientific commendation of hand washing flow from a shared source. Our work of prayer participates in and propels our public work of restoration. Prayer and action held together. The darkness shrinks when a medical professional discovers a new cure to a terminal disease. The darkness shrinks when a family opens its heart and its home to a child caught in the web of the foster care system. The darkness shrinks when a teacher offers affirmation, guidance, and wisdom to an overlooked student. A prophetic declaration over a student made in the image of God. The darkness shrinks when a manager upends hustle culture and communicates concern and respect for their co-workers. The darkness shrinks when we pause our schedule to talk to someone who has spent most of their adulthood strung out, overlooked, and uncherished. The darkness shrinks when we once again take up our identity as bearers of the light. Our response when confronted with the evil in our world is not to cower or to shrink back. It is to square our shoulders, stand on the foundation that is Jesus, and inject love into the darkness. Or as my boy Tom Wright put it, by giving us this prayer, Jesus invites us to walk ahead into the darkness and discover too that it belongs to God all ground holy under our king. The darkness will not stand. Worship team, if you would join me on the stage. In praying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are reminded that we are in the midst of a conflict. But it is a conflict that has already been decided. Our Jesus has taken the worst that the evil one can offer and he has broken his hold. Sin has been forgiven. Death has been conquered and Satan has been put on notice. His time is coming to an end. And it is within that 
understanding, we pray. In Mark 9, Jesus tells his disciples who've just tried to exercise a demon in their midst and failed. He tells his disciples that there are some evils that can only be exercised with prayer. There are some things that are so deeply rooted that it takes us partnering with our God to exercise the evil in our cities, in our world, in our workplaces. This is how we contend with the darkness. Now, contending prayer may be unfamiliar to most of us. For most of us, this is not a subject regularly talked about in our church spaces. And if it is, it's in a little bit of a fringe church space. And there were many other things that are problematic. So, it's kind of a fringe topic. Contending prayer may be unfamiliar us, but it is alive and well within the churches of the majority world. Our brothers and sisters in Colombia or Korea or Kazakhstan know that they must oppose the darkness in prayer. Now this does not mean we address our prayers at the darkness, but rather that we pray with God about the things that are grieving his heart. And so I want to offer two suggestions on how to practice contending in prayer that I've learned over the last few weeks. If I'm honest, this is something that is a little bit new to me. Just in studying, I was convicted by the fact that most of my prayers are devoted to my own life. Most of my prayer is not about God. Break the hold of darkness on our city and on our streets. Most of my prayers are about God. I would this thing in my life. But as I've been trying to practice contending prayer over the last few weeks, I've learned two things. That first, I must pray with my body. And for me, this has meant a lot of prayer walks. That I want to put my feet on the soil where injustice, brokenness, and evil still have a hold. So I'll walk down truce where redlining has crippled a community. I'll walk past a police station praying for safety, discernment, and a holy hesitation. I want to circle gas stations and car washes that are hubs for dealing and sex trafficking. I want to challenge the darkness in my prayer. And especially as the weather gets more mild, I walk more frequently. I want to put my feet on the soil And then the second thing I've learned is that I want to pray with my emotions. I want my emotions to mirror those of God. Now listen, I'm a Midwesterner through and through, so my temperament is described as mild at best. I am not one to cry a lot. I am not one to raise my voice. But on this subject, I think I need to My body should feel the grief of a community. My voice should hold the anger of image bearers taken advantage of. My eyes should brim with the tears of injustice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice. 
This is to ache with God. Let your emotions mirror those of God. This is not an encouragement to go into a sketchy gas station and make a scene. I promise you, please do not do that. This suggestion is not to elicit a particular response from you in this room. Rather, I'm encouraging you to go into your quiet time and make it a little bit louder. I'm encouraging you within your time that you would appeal on behalf of those in Turkey and Syria and that you would feel the tears of God's own life. You would appeal for your brothers and sisters stuck in the cycle of poverty and you would ache with them that your emotions might mirror that of God. This is to be intentional about our partnership with God in pushing back the darkness. That we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. And who knows how God might begin to break evil's hold. Who knows how he might begin to work in our city and in our world if his people were committing to seeing evil's hold broken. He might give you a creative solution. He might funnel millions into community development and renewal. He might soften the heart of an abuser. Who knows what he will do, but we will not be a part of it unless we pray. So the invitation is pray. As Karl Barth put it, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Let us be people of prayer and push back the darkness. Let's pray. Father, on a day marked by celebration and joy in our city, we pause to recognize that celebration is not everybody's default on this day. millions if not billions still suffer under the hold of our, the evil one. The one that your son warned us of still has a hold on our world and we pray deliver us from the evil one. We pray guide us out of our own temptation. Guide us in the paths of righteousness and justice for your kingdom's sake. We pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is Lord, over the coming weeks, as we enter the Lenten season and we remember the Jesus who went into the wilderness, who was tempted by the evil one and overcome, he overcame every temptation, we pray that we would practice that overcoming. We would practice the type of prayer that puts our feet on the soil of injustice and raises our voice in that we would be people who pray and are able to recognize the ways in which you push back the darkness. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. Amen.
listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church. Thank you.